why is a question that all of us ask. If you've had little kids or been around little kids, you know very early on they start asking the question, why? Forcing you as parents to think about your parenting. As human beings, we have a built-in desire to understand reasons and to have explanations and to have clarity. So whether we say it out loud or not, we often ask this question, why? Especially when trouble comes our way. Especially when suffering comes. Why? Why me? Why now? Why doesn't God come near to me? Why doesn't God intervene? And if you haven't wrestled with these questions yet, you will. It is inevitable. You will suffer in this life. You will. It's reality. You will suffer in this life. And when you suffer and begin to reach for relief, you are bound to ask the question, why? Because as one of the songs we sing says, this world with devils filled shall threaten to undo us. So the trouble, the suffering, it threatens our lives, it threatens our souls, it threatens our hearts, it threatens our minds, it threatens our attitudes, and we ask questions like, why? The book of Job tells the story of a man who hit the bottom below the bottom and asked God why. The book of Job is part of the Old Testament of your Bible, which is, of course, why we are studying it. It is between Esther and Psalms. If you haven't opened up there yet, I would encourage you to do so now. If you didn't bring a Bible, that's okay. We have Bibles that we provide for you in case you didn't bring one. So grab one from underneath a seat in front of you. Scholars agree the book of Job is very old, written at least 500 years before the birth of Christ. It may be as old as 1500 B.C., And the book of Job is, scholars also agree, it is a literary masterpiece. The book of Job is an incredible book. The first couple chapters, look with me, look with me, I want you to see what I'm talking about. There's 42 chapters in Job, you can look at the beginning and you can look at the end The first couple chapters, which some refer to as the 
prologue. And the last 11 verses of the book, if you flip and look, which some refer to as the epilogue, so the beginning and the end, they are written in prose. While everything in between, which some refer to as the dialogue, all 40 chapters are written in beautiful Hebrew poetry. So the first couple chapters are written in prose, the last 11 verses are written in prose, and then everything in between, the entire dialogue is written in Hebrew poetry. So the first couple chapters of Job, the first couple chapters get the story going, the last chapter ends the story, and everything in between, those 40 chapters, everything in between is escalating, intensifying rounds of dialogue, or escalating, intensifying rounds of speeches between Job and Eliphaz and Zophar and Bildad and Elihu, and finally, God himself. John Calvin wrote 159 sermons on the book of Job. There's so much in this book. In the 17th century, a Scottish Presbyterian named George Hutchinson preached 316 sermons on the book of Job. We can top that. (laughs) Joseph Carroll, who was a pastor in London, I think in the 19th century, whom, no, before that, the 17th century, whom John Owen succeeded, took in his church 24 years to preach through the book of Job. 424 sermons. You can actually go on Amazon and you can buy all 12 volumes. Practical observations on Job. It's about 8,000 pages. At the end of 24 years of preaching and teaching on the book of Job, no joke, he said in his last lecture, I have not attained a clear understanding of some of the passages. Good night. 24 years and he had not attained a clear understanding of some of the passages. So I considered devoting the rest of my earthly life to preaching through the book of Job. We'd have to like rename our church to just Job Church. I decided it would be best to take less time, so our plan is, Lord willing, to take the book of Job in 12 sermons, to do, as Charles Spurgeon said, stuff an ox into a teapot. (laughs) So that's what we're trying to do. 12 weeks, Lord willing, looking at the book of Job. In those 12 weeks, we we will cover every bit of the book, though obviously not in great detail. Uh, We will examine Job. We will examine his friends, but most importantly, 
I pray we will be examined by God as we study the book of Job. Here's just quickly an outline of the sermon series. Uh, Twelve sermons that will look something like this. This morning an introduction. Then we'll spend two weeks looking at the problems of evil that are introduced in this book. Part one, part two. Week four, we'll look at the miserable comforters that come to Job. Week five, we'll look at Job's faithfulness throughout his pain and suffering. In our sixth week, we'll take a look at chapter 28, which serves as a sort of interlude and relief in the book of Job, and it is about the wisdom of God. And then chapters 29 through 31, which is Job's sort of final summation, we'll look at in week seven. Week eight, Elihu interrupts the dialogue in chapters 32 through 37 with another sort of interlude. In weeks nine and 10, we'll look at words from the whirlwind. The Lord will speak, and we'll spend weeks 9 and 10 looking at his words to Job and to his friends. In our 11th week, we'll examine in chapter 42 the repentance of Job. And then our final week, Lord willing, we'll look to the example of Job, which we are appointed to by James in chapter 5 of his book, verses 10 and 11. I also plan throughout this sermon series to pass along resources along the way if you would like to study on your own and dig deeper. At this point, I would just pass along one and encourage you to all do this. Several years ago, uh, Desiring God Ministries put out a short animated film called Job. I think it's about 46 minutes long. You can find that online. If you haven't seen that, I would encourage you to watch that. Maybe watch it with your family. Desiring God is called Job. So as we study this book of Job, we will, with Job, put our questions to God. Questions like, why? And God will put his questions to us. So this morning, let's get our bearings by looking at just the first couple chapters, which set up the entire book, and let's get to know the book's main character, the great man, Job. Before I preach this sermon, we should pray together. Please bow your heads with me. Our Father in heaven, would you... Help us to understand your word this morning. And in understanding your word, would you ignite our hearts? Give us greater love and affection for you. And then, God, would you do something with our our wills, with our decisions? Pray that you would incline them toward you. That because of the work you do in our hearts, that we would seek to please you more. We pray and ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we've read and heard the first five verses of chapter 1. So let me summarize those verses along with the rest of the prologue, those first couple chapters through verse 10 of chapter 2. I'd like to summarize that and 
I'll summarize it under the following headings. A great man, Job. A godly father. Trouble. A godly response. More trouble. Another godly response. That sets the book of Job up. So first, we have a great man that we are introduced to here. Job lived in the land of Uz, which was probably somewhere northeast of Israel. He was at the time, look at verse 3 of chapter 1, the greatest of all the people of the east. He was blessed with a large family, and he was blessed with wealth. He had a wife. He had seven sons. He had three daughters, and he was seriously wealthy. How wealthy? He had 7,000 sheep. He had 3,000 camels. He had 500 donkeys. He had 500 oxen. In comparison, I have five cats and 14 chickens. So you can compare that. People of the day, so people of the day would have said that Job was a great man. But way more importantly, God said that Job was a great man. Way more important than people saying that you are great and people thinking you are great is God saying you are great. God said Job was a great man. In chapter 1, verse 8, and in chapter 2, verse 3, God said, as the author had said in the very first verse, that Job was blameless and upright, that he feared God and turned away from evil. So get this, Job was a great man in every sense of the word. He's blessed with a big family, he's got a wonderful wife, he's got seven sons and three daughters, he's very wealthy, he's prominent, he has a good reputation with the people of the land, and God looks at him and sees his heart, and says he's not just great externally, he's great internally, he is blameless, upright, he fears God, he turns away from evil. That is what all of you should want. You should want to be like Job in that sense. I want to be blameless. I want to be upright. I want to fear God. We just finished a sermon series on fearing God. We want to fear God. We want to turn away from evil. We want to be, as Job was, godly. He was a godly man. Maybe the godliest man alive. We see his godliness take action in verses 4 and 5. Look at verses 4 and 5. Job was a godly father. This is amazing. Job was a godly father. Listen, his his children were told would regularly gather, whether it was for birthdays or 
a weekly gathering, we're not sure, but they would regularly gather to celebrate and feast together, which, by the way, is a good thing. That is something God's people should do. So they would gather together regularly. They would delight in one another. They would delight in the gifts that God had given them. They would celebrate and feast together. And while Job was glad that they were enjoying the life that God had given them, it seemed he feared that they would maybe enjoy life more than the giver of life. He feared that they may, in their feasting, intentionally or not, sin against God and forget about God in their heart. So what did he do? That's what verses 4 and 5 tell us. At the end of their feast, at the end of every feast, which was, it was probably weekly, at the end of every feast... Early the next morning, he would be found alone on his knees begging God for their salvation. Week in, week out. He went before God like a priest in in the good Old Testament sense. He went before God as a priest and he offered, we're told, burnt offerings to God and he interceded for his children. And Job did this, we're told in verse 5, continually. In other words, this was Job's lifelong habit. He was vigilant for the sake of his children, not wanting any of them to come to ruin. This is the greatest work that parents do for their kids. He is a godly father. He is a godly example. Parents, the greatest work that you do for your children is on your knees. Praying for their souls before God. Job doesn't even know whether or not they have sinned. And he's going to God over and over and over again saying, God, I don't know I don't know, you know their hearts, you see their hearts. I don't want to take anything for granted. Oh God, please save them, save them, save them. That's his lifelong habit. This is a great man. So that's Job. He is a blessed and godly man. And our story starts with Job and his happy family. And Job rested in God. Partly, Job rested in God, partly, we'd have to say, because his life was, to this point, relatively free of trouble. He hasn't experienced a lot of hardship. In fact, according to chapter 3, verse 25, which we'll look at next week, Job feared what would come of his faith if trouble came. I can relate to that. I find myself often questioning my faith, 
and wondering what would happen if real trouble came. What would happen if I suffered the way Job suffered? And usually the way that strange questioning and daydreaming goes is, what would happen to my faith if I lost my family? He feared what would happen to his faith when trouble came. And little did Job know that trouble was about to come. Trouble. One day we're told, a dreadful day. A messenger came to Job and told him that all of his oxen and all of his donkeys, 500 and 500, had been stolen. And all their herdsmen were killed. While that messenger was delivering that news, we're told, another messenger came and reported that a fire swept through his land and all 7,000 sheep had been lost and all their herdsmen. As that messenger was speaking, another messenger came and told him that the camels, 3,000 camels had been stolen and all their herdsmen killed. So do the math. This is everything that Job had is lost. The day that Job dreaded had finally come. Trouble had come. His wealth, his possessions, all gone. But at least his family was safe. At least his family was safe. But then a final messenger came. And said, Job, your sons and daughters were all feasting. And a great wind came out of nowhere. It collapsed the house. Job, they're all dead. And Job tore his robe. He shaved his head. And he just collapsed to the ground. Well, let's pause and do what the author of this book allows us to do, and that is to go behind the scenes of what has just taken place in Job's life. At this point in the story, there is less mystery for the reader than there was for Job. The reader knows that this disaster or the, this series of disasters was conceived by Satan after a wager with God. So we're told that in verse 6, we're told that one day behind the scenes, unknown to Job, somewhere in the universe, 
Satan, or literally, the Satan, presented himself to God. And it's interesting to give an account for where he had been. We learn some things about Satan in the book of Job. He is a drifter, apparently, without a home, and he has to give an account to God of where he's been. And while he's there presenting himself to God, God brings up Job. God points out Job to Satan and says, there is a godly man. There's a man who loves me. There is a man who trusts God. In other words, Satan, there is a man who will love God no matter what. Satan disagreed. No. Joe? He loves you because he hasn't suffered. He loves you to get rich. He loves you so that he'll have health and wealth and prosperity. Job has lived a charmed life. Everything has gone his way. He has a wonderful marriage. He has happy children. He's wealthy. He's a man of good reputation. God, you have protected him. You have hedged him in. You have prospered him. Take all that away, and he will not love you. In fact, Satan goes so far as in verse 11 to taunt God by saying, stretch out your hand against and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. And what does God do? What did God say? Friends, this is, I think, disturbing. This disturbs me. God said, go ahead. Go ahead. Only don't harm Job himself. So listen. God is out here to prove something. He's out to prove something to Satan. He's out to prove something to Job. He's out to prove something to the world. He's out to prove something to the world. He's out to prove something to us. To you, to me. So God says, go ahead. Just don't lay a finger on Job himself. You can imagine Satan's excitement as the angels are watching and he left with permission to carry out his wicked plans. And poor Job had no idea what was about to happen and then the death. 
and the messengers. Satan had taken everything. And now I suppose he watched Job. And the angels watched. And we watch to see how will Job respond. Who's right? Is God right? Or is Satan right? He has just lost everything. So how will Job responds so with the universe. Here's a theater, right? And the universe is watching. And now we're presented with this so that we can watch, so that we can see, so that we can learn. Job, how are you going to respond? I know how I might respond. I fear how I would respond. How are you going to take this? Here is a godly response. Chapter 1, verse 20 and 21. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That's a victory. This reminded me of one of the songs that we sing. We sang part of it this morning. And the story behind the song that Horatio Spafford wrote. Horatio Spafford in the 1800s lived in Chicago, I think, with his wife and his four children. And in 1873, he lost everything in those great Chicago fires. Facing being destitute, he sent his wife and his four children. Do you know the story? He sent them on a ship to England. On the way to England, the ship they were on collided with another ship and 200 people were drowned, including all four of his kids. He didn't know this, of course. He heard the news that there had been a terrible accident. He was waiting to get word, and he received a telegram from his wife. And the telegram was two words, and it was saved alone. So as soon as he could, he got on a ship to cross the Atlantic to be with his wife. And apparently the ship stopped to grieve, to mourn where the other ship had sank. And when that ship stopped, he wrote these words. When peace like a river attendeth my soul, when sorrows like sea billows roll, Whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well. It is well with my soul. So the sorrows like sea billows are rolling over Job. They're rolling over Job and his faith proved victorious. Yet I will trust you, God. Yet I will love you, God. But Satan was not done with Job. 
think that was enough. Satan was not done with Job. Listen, more importantly, God was not done with Job. Which brings us to the second chapter of Job, the second scene between the devil and God. So let's go behind the scenes again. Satan proven wrong. God won. Satan zero. I told you he would love me no matter what. So Satan appears again before God and says this, skin for skin. All that a man has, he will give for his life. Verse 5 of chapter 2, but stretch out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh, and then he will curse you to your face. So he comes back to God and says, well, he still has his health. You wouldn't let me touch him. So you're still protecting him. You've still got that hedge around him. He can, he can handle this loss. He's proven that. But if you, if you pile sickness now on top of that, he's going to buckle. He will curse you to your face. And what did God say? It's disturbing. Go ahead. Just don't kill him. That's the limitation. His heart needs to keep beating. There needs to be brain activity. Otherwise, go ahead. God is out to prove something to Satan, to Job, to the world, to angels, to you. To me. So you can imagine again Satan's excitement as the angels are watching and he left with permission to carry out his wicked plans and poor Job had no idea what was about to happen. More trouble. Poor Job had already lost everything. He was poor now. All of his wealth was gone. His children were gone. And as Job was still mourning he begins to feel a burning and an itching and sharp pain. And he looks down and there are sores covering his body. We're told from the sole of his feet to the crown of his head. He's in the middle of mourning the loss of his children And he has now been inflicted with a horrible disease that he will carry with him almost to the very end of this book. He describes this disease throughout. Uh, He couldn't eat. His skin would turn black and then it would harden and then it would break and fluid would come out. He couldn't sleep. He tossed and turned all night. When he did fall asleep, he would have night terrors. He felt what he described as a burning within his bones. He smelled so terrible that children, his wife, would not even come near him. At one point, he makes it clear that he was so deeply depressed, he wanted to die. We'll see next week when his friends come to see him in chapter 2, verse 12. They don't even recognize him. 
And I suspect what happened next was even more painful than the boils, a sharp blow to his heart. Satan had, for some reason, spared Job's wife. I don't know if you ever thought about that. He could have taken Job's wife, but Satan did not take Job's wife. He had spared her. So she was all Job had. She was the one closest to him. She was going to be the the only one left on whom he could depend. But she provided no comfort. So it was like having, maybe this was part of the torture, it was like having comfort so close, but it's not there. She came to him, we're told, and he was sitting by a fire covered in ashes. He'd found a broken piece of pottery, and he was just scraping his body, trying to bring some sort of relief. And his wife came to him and said, in chapter 2, verse 9, why don't you just curse God and die? Now, I would encourage us not to be too hard on Job's wife. She was suffering almost as badly as Job was. She was a mother who just lost 10 children. This may have even been partly sympathy as she sees her husband suffering so terribly. But at the end of the day, she was not a source of comfort for him. So think about the wager. If you take all these things and if you inflict him with sickness, Job Job will curse you, God. And now Job's wife, the only one left, is saying, hey, Job, she doesn't know what's going on. But now she's telling Job, why don't you just curse God? This must have made a hopeful smile come across the face of Satan. He had taken everything, and now he watched, the angels watched, and we watched to see how will Job respond. And to everyone's surprise but God's, Job's trust in God remains. Chapter 2, verse 10. He said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God, and shall we not receive evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. And now the stage is set for the rest of the book of Job, and for the rest of our sermon series. Now, For the rest of our time together this morning, I'd like to point out two things for us to see in these first two chapters. Just two things. Number one, see the righteousness of Job. That's the first thing I'd like us to see. To think about. Think about this with me. See the righteousness of Job. He is, we're told three times, he's blameless. He's upright. He fears God. 
he turns away from evil. He demonstrates it for us. See how he was with his children? A godly head of his household. And now, see him respond to tragedy with unshaken faith. Now, as the suffering of Job intensifies, and some of you know this, as we read this book, we'll see that as the suffering of Job intensifies, he is going to question God. He's going to wrestle with the goodness of God. And he is going to sink into some darker places. Hey, even the best of men are men at best. He has survived the first trial of great loss, but we'll have to keep reading to see if he will survive the second trial of sickness. But for now, very clearly, Job is a godly man. So why is that important to see? Why is it important for us to see that Job was righteous? Job was perhaps the most righteous man on the earth. Why is it important to see that? Well, I don't know about you. But for me, that makes his suffering a tougher pill to swallow. This would be much easier for me to read if it was Hitler. It would. If this was happening to a wicked man, that would make more sense to me. It would seem like some sort of divine justice or divine punishment or retribution. Hey, you reap what you sow. What goes around comes around. The fact that Job is the most righteous man on the earth and he is suffering so greatly makes this a very tough pill to swallow. He's a good man. He's a godly man. This kind of suffering is not supposed to happen to good, godly men. So this book, think of it this way, this book is about innocent suffering. Job is an innocent man. Now, of course, by innocent, I don't mean that Job was without sin. He's a human being, so of course he's not sinless. But... He is without any sin that is resulting in this suffering. In fact, think about what was taking place in those courts between God and Satan. He is suffering not because he has committed some great sin. He is suffering because what? He's the most righteous man on earth. That's what brought him into the spotlight. So here is a man suffering, and he does not deserve this. 
Now that, I think, is the kind of suffering that we really struggle with. That is the kind of suffering that makes us question the goodness of God or makes us question the power of God. It makes us say, God, there's no way that you are good and all-powerful at the same time. Because if you're all-powerful and good, you would stop this. So either there's something more powerful than you, or you're not good. That's the dilemma when the innocent suffer. So that means that this book is going to help us. It's going to help us answer difficult questions. It's going to help us deal with the reality of innocent suffering. So that's number one, see the righteousness of Job. And number two, see the sovereignty of God. That is so clear in these first couple chapters. This good man suffers. Bad things happen to good people. That's what we have here. And Satan, it is clear, his hand in this, he is the sadistic architect behind this. He is the, the, the one who is delighting in the suffering of Job. He's delighting in the pain. But God, right, God is not passive. This isn't all Satan's doing. Think about this. To say that the suffering of Job falls within the sweep of God's sovereignty is to put it lightly. I mean, God is in total control over this disaster. And Job is not an exception. This is all over the Word of God. What what did we learn in regards to the sovereignty of God? Three things. Number one, Satan needed God's permission to afflict Job. He had to get God's permission. Once he had permission, number two, Satan was limited by God. So first, God had to give Satan permission to afflict Job. Then God limited Job and set up Satan and limited him and gave him boundaries. Okay, you can afflict him, but you can't cross this line. And then number three, we learned it's even more disturbing than that. Whose idea was this? Do you see that? Did your throat tighten up there? Mine does. Whose idea was all this? Who who put the idea of testing Job in Satan's head? Is this getting difficult for you yet? You sweating yet? Is this bringing things that you've been told and taught about God into question? Is this this making you doubt? Is this making you question? It should. 
God, the Word of God, can handle every single one of your difficult questions. This book of Job, we will not be done with it without having our difficult questions answered. But i got to tell you, they're not going to be answered the way you might expect. In fact, our questions are going to be answered with questions. And it will be exactly what we need. It will be exactly what Job needs. We'll say more about this as we consider what C.S. Lewis, some of you know, called the problem of pain over the next several weeks. But this morning, it is suffice to say this. God is sovereign. God is in total control of Job's suffering. And listen, that is a truth that is initially very difficult, but then is immeasurably helpful. If you're feeling right now, that's not the God I serve. That's not the God I worship. This is Satan's doing only God has no hand in this. That's blasphemous. Don't say that God is sovereign over that. No way. I don't believe it. If you feel that difficulty, there's probably a hundred people in this room right now that can still remember feeling that same way. And there's probably a hundred people that would gently say, hang on. Hang on. You're on the verge of understanding something that will change your life. You think God is good now, and you think this actually compromises his goodness. In the end, you will see he is better than you thought. I'm telling you, it's true. It is hard to swallow. But once swallowed, it is the most satisfying of truths. In conclusion, let's put those two things together. I see the righteousness of Job. I see the sovereignty of God. I hope you're like Job this morning. I hope you're righteous like Job. I hope you want to be righteous like Job. I hope you're growing in Christ that you're blameless, you're upright, that you fear God, that you turn away from evil. Now, if you are, you are going to suffer. If you love God, you are going to suffer. Maybe not like Job. But you will face great trouble. And friends, listen. When you face that great trouble, I want you to remember something that's very clear here just in these first two chapters. Friends, when you face great trouble, I want you to know this. Satan has a plan. And God has a plan. And if you are a believer... Satan's plan will fail every single time. And God's plan is going to succeed 
every single time. Satan unintentionally, unwittingly, unknowingly, even Satan works for God to accomplish his good. That's what's happening. Did you read? That's what's happening. This is all going to be, you'll see. I can't wait for you to see it if you haven't already. This is all going to be for Job's good. Job is going to love life more. He's going to love his family more. He's going to love God more. It will be sweeter in the end because of the degree of suffering. So Satan's plan, God's plan, compatible. I can't say it as good as this. Listen to William Henry Green. With all his hatred of God and spite against his people, this is about Satan, he cannot emancipate himself from that sovereign control which binds him to God's service. In all his blasphemous designs, he is, in spite of himself, doing the work of God. In his rebellious efforts to dethrone the Most High, he is actually paying him submissive homage. In moving heaven and earth to accomplish the damnation of those whom Christ has ransomed, he is actually fitting them for glory. Fiend as he is, full of bitterness and malignity and intent on every form of mischief, he is constrained to be that which he most abhors and is furthest from his intentions and desires, helpful and auxiliary to the designs of grace. He's God's helper. Like the sons of God who assemble in the presence of the infinite majesty to receive the commissions of the King of Kings, prompt to do his bidding and to execute his will, Satan is, though most reluctantly and in a different sense from them, yet as really and as truly in the case of those who, like Job, steadfastly resist his insidious assaults, he is a ministering spirit sent forth to minister to them who shall be heirs of salvation. Total control. Total control. Even the plans of Satan himself for the glory of God and the good of his people. You can't stop him. You can't stop God. You can't thwart his plans. So friends, when you face trouble and tribulation, remember Satan has a plan. He is after your soul. And God has a plan. And friends, if you are in Christ, take comfort in this sovereignty, in knowing that God's plan will succeed. It may be a very rough road. Job's was. But in the end, but in the end, God means to prove your faith. 
and to purify your life. There is something in Job that needs purifying, though he's a blameless and righteous man, and we'll see what it is. And there is great faith that Job has to be displayed and to be proven. But most importantly, there is a great object of Job's faith to be displayed. And that's what the book of Job is about. Displaying the great God whom he serves that enables him to endure as he does. So friends, will you trust him? the way Job trusted him. I pray you'll be helped through this series on the book of Job. Let me close by reading to you a short paragraph from a letter written by Thomas Jackson. Or you might know him as Stonewall Jackson. Uh, Lieutenant in the Confederate Army during the Civil War, and a devout follower of Christ. When he was 30 years old, his wife Ellie gave birth to their first son. And that baby boy was born, stillborn. And hours later, Ellie died. So on one day at the age of 30, Thomas Jackson lost his Wife and his only child. So days later, he writes a letter to his unbelieving sister, Laura. Here's one paragraph. I have been called to pass through the deep waters of affliction, but all has been satisfied. The Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Quotes Job. It is his will that my dear wife and child should no longer abide with me. And as it is his holy will, I am perfectly reconciled to the sad bereavement, though I deeply mourn my loss. My dearest Ellie breathed her last on Sunday evening, the same day on which the child was born dead. Oh, the consolations of religion. I can willingly submit to anything if God strengthens me. Oh, my sister would that you could have him for your God. Though all nature to me is eclipsed, yet I have joy in knowing that God withholds no good things from them that love and keep his commandments. And he will overrule this sad, sad bereavement. For good. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, would you help us to be like Thomas Jackson? Would you help us to be like Horatio Spafford? Would you help us to be like our brother Job? And when trouble comes, God, will you keep us faithful and incline our hearts toward you? God, we pray that the truths that we've learned this morning and by your will, we'll learn in weeks to come, would steady us, would increase our love for you, and increase our devotion to you. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.